This is The Spew, and we're taking a look at healthcare. I'm your host, Margie. Healthcare is actually nothing new by a long shot. The concept of diluting the personal economic risks from injuries and illnesses, well, that's been documented as far back as medieval times. Early in the 1800s, they had friendly societies or Saturday funds. It grew with the spread of industrialization. However, participation was purely voluntary which led to a low participation that, when coupled with poor administration and low contribution levels, resulted in an ineffective organization unable to pay adequate benefits. But we would never do that again. That is not where this story ends. Back in 1883, for Americans, that would put us somewhere between the Civil War and the First World War. The first national compulsory health insurance law was passed in Germany. Not surprisingly, the wounded from World War I actually helped accelerate this plan. Today, over 60 nations have some form of compulsory governmental program. The programs vary widely, and some allow private insurance to supplement the governmental program. Okay, so that's what happened in other countries. What happened in the U.S., you ask? Well, even if you didn't. Here's the answer. The U.S. sort of established a mutual protection health plan first, sort of because it was organized in San Francisco only. Hey, but it was in 1851, which puts it before the Civil War. The San Fran health plan was also noteworthy for having established a hospital in 1852 to provide care for its members. But alas, it was voluntary. So that may be why we don't have a national SF care today. Moving ahead to 1875, we got a few mutual benefit associations called establishment funds. These were formed by co-workers that got a bit of help from their employers. This private group health insurance was voluntary, poorly supported, overly complex, and a tad corrupt. That doesn't sound at all familiar. <sighs> It was in 1911 that Montgomery Ward and Company began negotiating with a number of insurers to get contracts providing loss of time benefits for employees under the age of 70 equal to one half an employee's weekly wage. This plan is generally regarded as the first group health insurance plan. In 1917, group accidental death and dismemberment insurance started up. Then in 1940, that puts us in the World War II era, Insurance companies began experimenting with long-term disabilities. We're going to take a look back at what Europe was doing around the same time when we come back with the Spew's look at healthcare. This is the Spew's look at healthcare, segment two. I'm your host, Margie. So meanwhile, back in time and back in Europe, Great Britain passed a National Health Insurance Act in 1911. Hmm, we had President... That's right, Taft. Hey, their compulsory plan actually piqued the interest of the U.S., but once Samuel Gompers, then president of the American Federation of Labor, rejected mandatory health insurance as being too paternalistic. Um, is that fancy talk for too caring? So instead, in the early 1920s, many of our hospitals started offering hospital expense benefits on an individual prepaid basis. 
The idea of a group prepayment plan for hospital coverage did take hold, though, at Baylor University Hospital in Dallas, Texas, in 1929, when some 1,500 school teachers... Mr. Spicoli, you're on dangerous ground here. You're causing a major disturbance on my time. ...were covered for 21 days in any one year. Yep, the year the Great Depression started was when this began. The timing of it may have been what got other hospitals to follow the Baylor plan. The Great Depression is probably also what inspired Blue Cross to develop during the 30s. Hey, pooled small amounts of money is better than none. Gradually, more and more companies began requesting more benefits for their employees. Unions. Funny things, aren't they? (laughs) Then, post-World War II, the plan was to go to a single-payer health care system. Translation? Just one single entity pays doctors and hospitals' bills. A single-payer health care system is one where the government operates a tax-funded health insurance plan for all residents. It cuts out the profit-requiring middleman, makes it cost less, and requires better coverage, as unhappy taxpayers can vote out an official that doesn't make sure that the health plan actually covers us. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll get back to what happened to those plans next on The Spew. Segment three of Spew's Look at Healthcare. I'm your host, Margie. So World War II was coming to an end, and FDR, along with Winston Churchill and Joseph Stalin, realized what remained was going to be a hot mess. Okay, I may be paraphrasing there. They divided the areas that would come under their control, so that left Stalin pretty much out of any further conversations. But Winston Churchill and FDR figured out that the only way to go would be with a single-payer health care. In fact, it was such a good plan that FDR wanted to carry it over to the U.S., but, well... Yeah, his own health care ran out. That left his fairly new vice president, suddenly named President Harry Truman, to compete against lobbyists for hospitals and doctors that enjoyed charging whatever they wanted and the for-profit insurance companies. He lost. But Great Britain and millions of others in Europe did get it. Moving ahead to 1965. That puts us in the Vietnam War era. President LBJ gets Medicare and Medicaid going. Spew translation. The government-run insurance program for everyone over 65 years old is Medicare, and Medicaid is the one that offers health care for low-income people. If you're asking, hey, isn't this just single-payer? Why aren't we all getting it? Please rewind this podcast to where we discuss lobbyists and greed. Full speed ahead. We get to 1993. Enter Hillary Care. Well, not exactly. President Clinton put his completely capable wife, Hillary, in charge of overhauling health care. However, there were only six women in the Senate then. Today, we have 23. So you might have a hint at what kind of uproar that was. The plan wasn't all that extreme. It would blend free market competition with federal regulation. The stumbling block was that part of the government's contribution was that it would monitor insurance costs, including drug prices. Needless to say, this did not make some people very happy. Some very well-connected people. The plan was also considered a bit too complicated. 
But in 2006, one Republican governor oversaw a plan that wasn't too complicated, and we'll get to that next on The Spew. This is a Spew segment for Look at Healthcare. I'm your host, Margie. So when we left off, healthcare was all too complicated for Americans. Yep, Europe and our neighbors to the north had it for decades, and Mexico was just about to start their universal health care when Massachusetts Republican Governor Mitt Romney signed into law state health care. Yeah! So how did they do it? Well, someone there must have looked back in history or had the basic understanding of economics because they made it mandatory. Everyone has to buy health insurance. Those who can't afford it will get assistance from the state government. Those who couldn't get coverage where they worked, well, they'll get it from a state exchange. Whoa, this is sounding familiar. Yep, in 2018, with more than 43 million uninsured Americans, thanks to financial crises and having pre-existing conditions like diabetes or asthma, the newly elected President Obama encouraged Congress to continue the work they had been doing on a bipartisan bill. Time out. By what? Spew translation. Bipartisan. Adjective. Involving the agreement or cooperation of two political parties. Yeah, sounds strange, but really... Back in the day, that was how they did things, and that's how things actually get done. It took a while, and the talking heads who get paid to enrage on a daily basis, people decided the sponsors of their show were more important, uh, rather, excuse me, Uh, Let's just say it did not go through unnoticed in 2010. Later that year, the midterms caused the usual political shift in Congress, and lo and behold, they began to undermine the Affordable Care Act, a.k.a. Obamacare. So where are we today? Well, GOP leaders were not successful in trying to get the Supreme Court to rule the individual mandate requiring you get insurance or pay a fine illegal. So they decided to take a swing at the foundation themselves. In 2017, they sent to our current president a bill that made it legal for profit insurance companies to charge more for pre-existing conditions and not to cover some conditions like emergency care or maternity care. Hmm. Wasn't this the party that loved babies? It also switched up the tax credits, cut funding to Medicaid, and oh yeah, cut the individual mandate. Start this podcast again if you don't understand what a big deal that is. And maybe now you're thinking, well, what is the big deal after all if we don't have health care? It's not that great for other countries. <laughs> no, we'll get to that next on The Spew. It's The Spew's Look at Healthcare, Segment 5. I'm your host, Margie. So what if we don't have health care? Other countries have it and they're hurting because of it. Wow. Can you smell that pile? According to Time Health, the U.S. spends roughly twice what other countries spend on health care. And it's not leading to better health here. Hmm. Something to do with for-profit middlemen, maybe? Or the added cost of unregulated drugs, supplies, and anything or anyone that can put their hand in the till. Despite the larger amount of money going into our health care, we are not using it more than other countries. And the U.S. has the shortest life expectancy. According to the conservative think tank, the Heritage Foundation... Our desire to maintain a freer economy through a hands-off approach to universal health care is just a myth. In fact, 
10 countries that rank higher than us in the economic freedom scale have achieved universal coverage. The U.S. government spends more per capita on health care than all but two other countries in the world. So in the end, the lack of universal health care should not sit well just with people who care about others' well-being, but also with people who only care about the bottom line. If your representative is not working to get this problem solved, perhaps they are more concerned with who is making them rich enough to want to help keep us all from getting it. What can you do about it? How about you just write a letter or call your representative and let them know that you will be voting based on this issue? Well, that's going to wrap up our look at healthcare on The Spew. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Margie. 